This morning's New Testament reading comes from 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I have perceived in life that there are two kinds of thorns. There are the real thorns, the things that happen to us that we have no control over. These are the things that we talked about a few weeks ago as being sort of the storms of life. They come rushing in on us and we can't really do anything about it. All we can do is lift to God our frustration, our concerns, our worries, our cares. These are the sorts of things we might think of as sickness or financial struggle or difficulty. And then there's another type of thorn. That's, this is the thorn that I'm going to be talking about most this week. I'll be talking a little bit about both. But this sort of thorn is one that we perceive to be a thorn, but is actually a blessing. And we're going to talk at some length about that because I believe that in both this church... And in the world around us, we have people who see things as thorns that are actually wonderful blessings God has given to us. And we need to start to reconstruct a Christian mindset around those things. But what about that first sort of thorn? The kind Paul talks about today in Corinthians, the sort of thorn that happens to you, that is tormenting you, is perhaps stunting your Christian faith and you want to just go away so you can begin to live what you perceive to be a more spiritual existence. We can think of these things as things like sickness, perhaps the death of a loved one, Financial difficulties, loss of a job, can be any number of things. Where do we see grace in that? How, as Paul talks about in today's scripture lesson, how do we get beyond the idea of thinking of that as a curse or a thorn and begin to see it as blessing, as something God is working through? There's been an individual in this church who several months ago was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. And I've actually heard this individual say several times that cancer is the best thing that ever happened to her. How? How can that be? How can you take something where you're staring, sickness, possible death in the face. How can you look at that and say, this is the best thing that ever happened to me? Well, certainly, the person doesn't enjoy the sickness itself. Certainly, if you're struggling financially right now, you're not enjoying the financial struggle. 
certainly if you have a sick spouse, if you have a child who's sick, you're not enjoying that part of it. But can you see grace through it? I believe so. I believe so. You know, we Christians are a strange people. We're strange because we look at the good things that happen and praise God. And then we take the things that aren't so good in our lives and we continue to praise God. What kind of an odd people do that? And why do they do that? I believe it's because we see grace everywhere. Even when we're struggling, even when we're sick and broken, even when our finances aren't what they wish we were, or we don't have the job we think we should have, God is there. If you woke up this morning, if you're taking breath right now, if you enjoyed the company of a family or a friend, that's grace. And sometimes when calamity falls upon us, we become most aware of grace because we learn not to take for granted those things that God has blessed us with. So, and I'm not speaking out of experience here. I'm speaking out of observation. Those who are most, or perhaps better stated, best able to cope with tragedy and difficulty and the thorns of the flesh that are legitimate thorns, I have found are people who seek grace despite the thorn. They see God working despite the thorn. As Paul says, God's answer to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And again, therefore I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. As I mentioned, we're not going to speak a lot about this. We've talked about this a little bit throughout the last couple weeks in our church. But I want to encourage you, even if you're going through calamity, hardship, weakness, difficulty, God is there. God is there. And sometimes the easiest thing, the easiest way to become aware of God's presence again is to focus on the small blessings, is to take our mind off the things that are frustrating or difficult and to begin to focus in on how God is working in magnificent ways even despite our struggle. And that's where Paul's coming from, I think. Paul is looking at these things, or this thing, whatever it is that he's struggling with, the text really doesn't tell us. He's looking at this thing and he's saying, God is still good. God is still there. And so that's our challenge. It's to find God even when we don't feel God. And that's why it's referred to as spiritual discipline. Because sometimes it is a struggle to find God despite the tragedy. But he's still there. He's still there ministering to us through his word. He's still there ministering to us through friends and family. He's still there ministering to us when we look outside and we see this vast creation, this beautiful world that he's created. 
He's still there even in the sickness. And he can turn good out of bad. He can take stage four cancer and make it a blessing for somebody in some way and do amazing things with that. So are we the kind of people who are seeing blessings even despite the thorn? That's that first thing. That's that first sort of thorn. The one that's happening to us, that's given to us, we can't really respond to. But there's another sort of thorn, and these are the things I want to spend most of my time with today. There's another sort of thorn that we often perceive to be a thorn, but is actually a blessing. And there are two types of thorny blessings that I want to talk about today. I was having a tough time figuring out how I was going to preach on this text in regards to this sort of thing until Friday afternoon when I was sitting in Bible study and the topic turned to marriage. And since then, the the Spirit has been working in me in such a way that says, you have to preach on marriage this week. So this is what we're going to talk about for the next several minutes. It is my belief that many people perceive the blessing of marriage as a thorn in the flesh. They look at their spouse and they perceive that person as not being good enough, perhaps not being good looking enough, perhaps not possessing the qualities that they expected that person to possess when they got married, perhaps not being someone who opens up enough and speaks enough and shares feelings enough, perhaps not being motivated enough. And so over time, one spouse begins to look at the other spouse and says, this isn't what I signed up for. I don't want this. I'll go and find the next Cinderella or the next Prince Charming or whatever it may be. I'm done with you. And so it's very easy to fall into this idea that somehow the person is valuable only because we assign value, a preconceived notion of value to that individual. We look at our spouse and we say, if you don't do this, this, and this, if your way or your, the way you are doesn't line up with how I perceive you should be, You've got a problem. Well, I want to take us this morning to Genesis 24. Genesis 24, starting at verse 64. Rebecca also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He's my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isaac loved Rebekah. How? How could Isaac love Rebecca? He'd never even met Rebecca. Abraham, after Sarah's death, sent a servant into his homeland to find a wife for Isaac. This servant went into that land, 
and found Rebecca. And after receiving the agreement from the family and from Rebecca, made back out to where Abraham and Isaac are. And as Rebecca sees Isaac for the first time, that is truly the first time she's ever seen him. They haven't been on any websites in order to figure out whether their personalities match. They haven't had any premarital counseling. They haven't had the benefit of talking to each other and figuring out whether or not their goals and dreams in life are the same, whether their personalities match up and are the same, whether they have the same long-term ambitions, short-term ambitions, whether they want the same amount of kids, whether they want the same kind of house. They don't have any of that. Not a bit of it. And yet Isaac loved Rebecca. And as we read previous to this passage, we know that the Rebecca is the kind of person that probably loved Isaac as well. How does that happen? How does that happen today? What is the context today for a husband to love a wife and for a wife to love a husband? When we get rid of the Princess Diana weddings and we break it all down and then we realize we wake up one day and we look at the person and we say, I have nothing in common with this individual. I don't feel anything toward this individual other than spite because I've had these dreams, these goals, these hopes, these ambitions and this person just gets in the way of it. Or I expect a wife or I expect a husband to be this way and this person has met none of the criteria that I expected when I got married. What do we do with that? Isaac loves Rebecca. But we don't know what they expected of the other person. We don't really know what Isaac grew up with in a mom, what he expected from a wife. We don't really know what Rebecca expected in a husband. But Isaac loved Rebecca. And I have a sneaking suspicion that no matter who that servant had brought back, Isaac still would have loved that woman. And how is it possible? Because we have two choices in our marriage. And it doesn't matter how good or how bad you perceive your marriage to be, you still have two choices every day. One, you can wake up and gripe and moan and complain about all the things you perceive your spouse to lack. Or two, you can choose to see the image of God in your spouse. And that goes for anybody I don't care what your spouse looks like. I don't care how your spouse talks, what their talents are, what they feel, what their goals are. If you live with another human being that you have vowed to spend the rest of your life with, the image of God is there. And your option as a Christian spouse is really only one if you're going to live in a Christian way to find Christ in them, 
and to love them for who they are. Isn't that the catchphrase we always say? I want somebody who loves me for who I am. That's what we want Christ to do for us. That's what we know Christ did for us. He loved us despite who we are. But who wants to be the person who's loving despite what the other person is? When I read my Bible, I only feel, see two options for not loving a person anymore. Choosing not to love a person anymore, not to invest yourself in the marital relationship. One, if the individual has cheated on you. Two, if the person is abusing you. Those are the only two options, the only two times you get to walk away. And so if you want to know what marital counseling looks like from my point of view, if you should ever decide to use it, that's first priority. Priority number one. If you have it in your heart that this person you're with is no longer investing your time or your effort because they have not lived up to your expectations, you're the problem, not them. When you can no longer see the image of God and the light of Christ in your spouse, your spouse is not the problem. You are the problem. Isaac loved Rebecca, and he didn't even know her. It's because Isaac chose to love Rebekah. Isaac made a decision before he even met Rebekah that he was going to seek out the good in Rebekah and pull that good out of her and pull it out of him so that he could focus on what he loved rather than focusing on what he doesn't love. Now, is it true that there are some people that are easier to love, easier to find the good in than other people. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. But here's something that I have found in my own marriage, and maybe you'll find this too. When I focus on the things that frustrate me about Amy, I don't make her better. She doesn't become what I wish she'd be. But when I invest in her praise, when I speak words of love and loyalty and honor to her, she responds. There was a study out several years ago. I don't remember exactly who put it out or or where it came from. But it's something along the lines of for every one negative comment that you make to a person, it takes 10 positive comments to make up for that. Because our human condition is always, we're always going to remember the one thing somebody said that isn't good or isn't right. I believe we have an opportunity as spouses not just to stick it out. Not just to make sure we don't get divorced for the kids' sake. But to make our marriages awesome. Absolutely amazing. No matter who you're with. Because the reality is an amazing marriage is generally amazing because it's perceived by the individual who chooses to love the other person as amazing. 
Spouses have the awesome opportunity to make each other better people. You know, the best teachers I've ever had are the teachers who were able to find something in me that was worthy of pulling out and making even better. What do we do with spouses? Half the time, we're so busy arguing and talking about how rotten and and horrible the other person is. We don't spend nearly enough time trying to find the greatness in that individual and pull that greatness out. Lift it up. Praise it. Appreciate what God has given you in this person. This week, I want you to think on this a little bit. Actually, I want you to think on it a lot. You look at that person that you're married to, and you recognize that that person was made in the image of God. And because that person was made in the image of God, they are a person of absolutely magnificent, sacred worth. God loves that person deeply and passionately. God sees goodness and his image in that person. If God can see it, who are you not to see it? If the laundry doesn't get done this week, if your spouse isn't bringing home the kind of paycheck you wish they were bringing, if the dishes are maybe stacked up, who cares? Who cares? That person that you're waking up next to is made in the sacred image of God. And you have an opportunity to see and seek that image every day or you can wake up every morning grumbling about the thorn you perceive. I realized about five years ago that I had to make that choice in my marriage. I was either going to grumble all the time about what I wish Amy was or I was going to love Amy for who she is. You have that same choice to make. And those are your only two choices if you're a Christian and you're dedicated to your faith. You do not get to leave. So I'm going to be hard here and I'm going to push this hard. Your only choice if you're going to be a Christian spouse is to find Christ in your spouse, to build your spouse up, to find those positive qualities in him or her and to love your spouse. Isaac loved Rebecca. Adam loves Amy. How about you? How about you? It's a choice. It's a daily decision to build up your spouse and to love your spouse as opposed to breaking down and complaining about the things you don't like of your spouse. 
So that's the first perceived thorn. How do you perceive your marriage? The second perceived thorn revolves around work. I know there are people here who don't like their jobs, who don't enjoy their careers, who don't feel fulfilled, who wake up every morning and think, ah, this is not what I had planned. You know what my plan was when I was coming out of high school? My plan was one of two things. Either one, I was going to pitch for the Los Angeles Dodgers and go figure, they don't need guys who are five foot eight and throw on a good day, 80 miles an hour. Or two, I was going to be president of the United States. Now, I probably should have planned in the in-between phases for exactly how that was going to work out, but that was my goal. I was going to be president of the United States or I was going to play for the Dodgers, maybe both. Who knows? And then 15 years later, I was sitting in an office doing office work. I had stacks of paper. I was taking telephone calls. I was not anywhere near Dodger Stadium or Capitol Hill. And I got frustrated. And boy, could I grumble. Man, I grumbled, especially to Amy. Man, did I grumble. Complained all the time about how unfulfilling this work was and how I was supposed to be doing something different. And I knew that I could be doing something different. And Oh, over and over and over again. And every single day it seemed like I was just mad and grumbling and I was upset about what I was doing for a living. But it was a blessing And I wish that somebody had come up and slapped me upside the head and said, Adam, do you realize what you have? You have a wife and three kids that have a place to live. You're contributing productively to the country and to your society. And all you can do is grumble about it. I get that sometimes we're doing work that we don't feel particularly suited for. I get that. I understand there can be frustration and feeling like we're well-suited to a particular kind of work and for whatever reason, things happen in life and we just, it just doesn't happen. We don't end up where we thought we were going to end up. We don't do what we thought we were going to do. And it is so easy once those things happen and our plans kind of go off the rails, to become a grumbler, to get angry and frustrated and start thinking that somehow there's something lacking in the work that we do. But I want to encourage you this morning. If you have a job right now, 8.2% unemployment rates, if you have a job right now, you are blessed. You have a wonderful grace, a wonderful blessing from God if you have employment. Because 8.2% of the population that wants a job can't get a job. And the reality is there's an even higher percentage of people than that who are doing work that they weren't doing before that have had to take a substantially lessened amount of money in order to continue supporting their families. 
even they have blessing. And we can see grace in that. But sometimes it's real easy to start thinking that the work we do doesn't matter. And as a result of that attitude, we start to grumble, we get frustrated, and we start to think that there's something wrong with us, something wrong with the other people, uh, the people that we're working with, and we just start complaining. We don't get that luxury as Christians either. Today, when you go home, you think about this. If you're supporting yourself, or if you're supporting your family, through the work that you do, if there's somebody who thinks that your skill is valuable enough to give you a paycheck, then you're blessed because there's an awful lot of people in our world who don't have that blessing. Go to a third world country sometimes. See the kind of poverty that people are living in there. Dirt floors, no running water, very, very few things. And then you tell me you're not blessed. If you have a job, you're blessed. But it brings up that question, how do you get from that point where you're doing work that doesn't feel so fulfilling and still see it as a blessing? Well, I think one of two things. First of all, there's no reason to think that our work should be the thing that fulfills us. We don't have to go to work every day and think, this job is the thing that gives my life meaning. And in fact, I think it's kind of a sickness when we begin to see our work as being the extension of who we are rather than as seeing who we are relationally with our family and our loved ones and our friends, our immediate community. Now, there doesn't have to be a dichotomy between work and the service we provide and the person we are. But sometimes it's enough that the work we do, number one, provides a service for somebody who needs it, and number two, provides what our families need in order to survive. It's our families, ultimately, I think, that we work for. And so I guess my encouragement to you is this. If you're doing work that you don't love, look for the blessings Your blessings may not be the blessings that I perceive. You know, I love being a pastor. But there are days that I wake up and I don't particularly enjoy it because I know what I have to go and do and maybe I don't want to do that thing. The thing for me, you know what it is really? I hate doing charge conference paperwork. Can't stand doing that. I can't stand doing the administrative stuff. But you know what? I have two choices when I'm doing it. One, I can perceive it as a thorn or I can see it as a blessing. I choose to see it as a blessing now. And you know it's transformed the way that I do things administratively. Instead of looking at it as that burden or that curse that comes with ministry, I've started looking at it as a blessing to my ministry, and it's actually given me insight on how to do things better administratively in the church. Perhaps part of the reason you view your job as a curse is because you simply treat it as a curse. Maybe you're not actually enjoying the fruits of what you could be doing in your work because you're so busy grumbling. Whereas if you had a positive mental approach to what you're doing at work, maybe then you could begin to see things in new light, start doing things in a new way, 
finding new approaches, new processes, things that are, if not exciting, at least fulfilling to you. I don't know. I don't know what your jobs are. I know what they are individually, but wherever you are in that, no matter where you're at, look for the good. Look for God's grace in your job. Look for God's grace in everything, but particularly look for God's grace in your job because nothing's given. Nothing is a given. And the job you have today could be lost in a week. So be glad for what you have. Those are the three thorns. There are the real thorns, the sicknesses, the struggles, the difficulties, hardships, whatever word you want to use. Those are real. And we can still find God's grace in them. And your marriage is a blessing. Because even if you two are butting heads every week, God is going to use that. God's eventually going to allow you to wear yourselves down so far that you don't have any choice but to start seeing the good or leave. And as I've already said, if you're a Christian and you're serious about your faith, you don't get to leave. You don't get to leave. Because the image of God still exists in that person. Again, aside from cheating, aside from abuse, you have no other choice. We stick it out. But we don't just stick it out. We make it awesome. We make it to be the amazing institution that God created it to be. A picture of Christ's relationship with the church. One where he loves the church so much that he sacrifices himself and he dies for it. I bet you Isaac would have done that for Rebecca. Would you do it for your spouse? So it's not just about not leaving. It's about transformation. Seeing the image of God in your spouse and then honoring your spouse in everything you say and in everything you do. And that third thing, your work. Your work. Be proud of your work. Recognize that you're blessed because of the work you do. Realize that there are other people who do not enjoy the benefits of the work you do. What I'm getting at today is what I get at every single week, really. Grace. Do you see God actively working in your struggles, in your marriage, in your work? Do you see God in that? If not, I encourage you, start looking because it's there. It's easy to ignore it. It's easy to not seek God. It's easy to get into negative patterns of thinking. Woe is me, woe is me, life is so hard. Well, friend, let me just give this to you if I could. 
buck up and look for God. He's there all around you if you just open your eyes a little bit. He's there when you wake up every morning and you look at that person that you married however many years ago. He's there when you go to the office and you do whatever work you're doing. He's there as you have physical issues or mental issues or emotional issues or whatever they are. He's there. Look. Look. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you give us thorns. I thank you for the thorns. Like Paul, we realize there are those things that you give to us that you allow us to experience so that we can experience your grace all the deeper. Father, this morning in particular, I want to lift up those two things that we can sometimes perceive as thorns, our marriages and our work. Lord, help us to see that we have a super abundant gift in our spouse. And help us to further see that we have been blessed with the work that you have ordained to give to us. And so, Lord, help us to take those two things and return them to you in praise. And help us to glorify you through our trials, through our marriages, and through our work. Amen.